Um, I would make sure that when you're buying the property. So the big question is what a top agent is doing to absolutely crush it in real estate. To get the answers, we interview the top real estate agents to learn their secrets to success. If you would like one-on-one -on -one access to over 26 of the top agents in the country to help you scale your business, then head over to EliteAgentSecrets.com slash partner, or you can just click the link in the description below. My name is Andrew Dunn. And my name is Peter Michael. Welcome to Elite Agent Secrets. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Elite Agent Secrets. Today I have a special guest by the name of Charles Carrillo. Now, Charles is also a Floridian just like myself. He lives about 30 minutes from me, which is super exciting. I don't get to kick it with the locals as much as I would love to, but that's enough about that because he's also a partner of Harborside Partners, which is a real estate syndication firm, and they have been actively investing in multifamily and commercial since 2006. Now, since that time, they have invested over $200 million worth of investments in real estate. Now, Charles also is the host of the Global Investors Podcast. So make sure you guys give them a listen. And he interviews professionals about investing in US real estate, not just real estate agents, any profession, any background. Now, today we're going to be covering the topics of building wealth by investing in real estate. We'll also be covering what makes a multifamily real estate a solid asset class and strap on your seatbelts because in topic number three, we'll talk about actually what is real estate syndication. And then we'll take it a step further by talking about how to invest in US real estate, whether you're a foreign national or investor, or you are domestic here in the US. Charles, welcome, my friend. Thank you so much for having me on, Peter. It's great to be here. Almost ran out of breath on that one. <laughs> <laughs> hey. You started in 2006. I know we got talking a little bit. You have your real estate license. It was a COVID thing. I know you're not actively an agent, but I think the value that you bring to the show today is really heavily on the investing side. So I got to take it back to 06. Before shit hit the fan, <laughs> that's when you decided to get into real estate. How did you get onto the real estate train? How did you survive 08? And now, how are you here almost, what is it, 20 years later? I think we're at 17 years later, yeah. right? Let's dive in. Yeah. So just a short background about myself. So I grew up in a real estate investing family. I'm from a small town in Connecticut. And my dad was a bought his first multifamily property in 1984, a 16-unit property. And um, over that time, until he started really selling them in the late eight, late 90s, early 2000s. He had amassed like 100 units, him and a partner. And mainly most of them were D-class properties. So if people don't really know that those aren't, those aren't really where you want to live and those aren't really where you want to invest. Very tough properties, um, tough areas and tough client, uh, tough tenants. And um, so that was a whole second education for myself growing up during those years because he self-managed them. So he had a small team of people that managed them and he was overseeing that, but also, you know, doing, you know, we did everything from uh, dealing with contractors, real estate agents, uh, collecting rent, the whole nine yards. And so that was a whole education. And once I got out of college in 06, he pushed me to what we call now house hacking. And but uh, back then there wasn't really a name for it. And that's really just um, I purchased a three family property. I lived in one of the units and rented out the other two. And um, I did that again in 08. I didn't live there, though. But um, and then I 
purchased my first commercial property, which was a five unit property, which what we call mixed use, which if you've ever been to a city center, you know it where there's an office or retail on the first floor, and then there's apartments above it. And that's what that was. I bought that really at the end of 09. And that was fully vacant. That was a huge renovation. And then after that, it just kind of grew from there, got involved, moved to Florida in 2012, um, got involved with larger properties. And we started working with syndications in 2018. And that's what our group's been really focusing on. And I sold my portfolio of all my smaller stuff in Connecticut in uh, 2022. Wow. One hell of a ride. <laughs> I love it. So since, since we're talking about you sold your portfolio, what did that process look like? And what was like the decision-making process of selling and, and, and kind of moving on and, and doing this now? So when when I left uh, Connecticut in 2012, and I own some properties, I own some with my brother as well. And um, we, we put in a third party manager that was very good. And uh, he kind of let us know in 2021 that he was going to be retiring. And uh, we kind of made the decision to, you know, let's sell like, you know, we had a really good manager, it's gonna be difficult to find another one. So we had to put in an interim manager during that time, um, from the time that he was kind of quitting and to the time that we were selling. And uh, it was it was just a mess. It made me really happy to want to sell it because it comes down to the management is the most important if kind of part of multifamily investing, because that's the people that are going to be controlling who goes to the property, the condition of the property, how tenants are managed. And, you know, it just, if you don't have the right manager that knows how to handle the tenants that your properties uh, rent to, it's very difficult to, to really make it profitable. I mean, in, I, I kind of realized this firsthand when I put that new manager in there and it was only for a few months before we sold, but it was what I had taken for granted for so many years for my old manager. Uh, it was something that um, just you know daily texts, daily calls with problems that shouldn't have been coming to my to my desk. And um, so it's something that um, that really propelled us to want to even sell it even more. And we sold it to an investor out of New York City that came and bought the whole portfolio from us. And uh, so it worked out well, but it was it's a long process. I mean, you have multiple properties. Everybody knows here kind of the closing process that's listening to me. But you kind of are working for the most part with vacant homes, right? Um, so it's a whole different thing when you're taking uh, you know, you've got a dozen plus units, you know, different properties, you've got different leases. Some leases are still intact. Some are now verbal month to month because we haven't renewed them. You know what I mean? And we're letting them leaving that for the next uh, landlord to come in and take care of. Um, and there's all different types of stuff. We had like open building permits, the whole nine yards of stuff that I had to work through in that time to get closed out to make sure these properties could actually like transfer. And um, so it's a lot of work. And it's something that, um, Going forward, that's you know that's one thing that we really, uh, when you're managing properties, you kind of realize a lot of different things. Um, because I used to self manage when I bought in 06 to 2012, and that was a real headache. So having a third party manager come in there really takes a lot of things off your plate and allows you to really to buy more property and spend time on really where you're making your money. So it was quite the process of selling those properties, but uh, you know, in hindsight, we sold somewhere near the top without even knowing it. The and some people will say, call it luck, but the, it's not like you predicted this. Um, but at the same time, in a way, you had a need, you had a pain point, and you were ready to let go. And I always talk about, you know, you make money on the acquisition. If you're buying correctly, you will always make money on the, I don't want to say always, because I hate talking to absolutes. You will more than likely 
very often make money on the exit, right? And I always say is pigs get killed, hogs get slaughtered. If you guys probably waited just a little bit longer, if you, you know, were trying to time the market or whatever it was, maybe you bought it at a wrong time, then this could have been a very different conversation that we'd be having right now. Right. Right. Um, I want to come back though, to one of the things that as you guys were making your decision, there was a lot of moving components, a lot of things that were basically at stake as you were going through this process from the beginning, the acquisition self-managing to then having somebody who manages it for you um, to then selling it off. What were some of the biggest pain points that you've had to work through other than you know, making sure everybody is either on a lease or off a lease or the permits, the violations were cleared out. In other words, did your manager kind of leave you with a mess and you just had to figure out how to get through it? Or was there some things that you wish you knew if somebody's in a similar situation mm -hmm. as they are getting rid of their portfolio and moving into syndication that we'll dive into in just a second, because there are quite a few benefits of doing one versus the other and different strokes for different folks, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, I, I don't want to blame anything on the old manager. The old manager was very good. I wish I got a little bit more time, like maybe like six months or a year. He told me beforehand so I could actually sold them with him being the manager on them. But it is what it is. The thing is that um, he did really well with us for a year or 10 years. And uh, we're, we're happy that that worked out. But, um, you know, a lot of it was just we had a lot of the projects going on, larger projects, and we were spending more time there than we were on our smart portfolio properties and stuff that I should have been double checking. I should double check that when a roof was done, that the, uh, the contractor actually closed out that permit. You know what I mean? When we had a fire alarm system put into two of the properties, those permits were actually closed out. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, these are things that should have been done. We had like a, you know, a water main, a water line supply line to one of the properties was replaced, uh, years back. We should have had that signed off. You know what I mean? We should have checked, make sure you had open permits that were closed. And these are things that anybody owning property, especially when there's a lot of stuff going on in multifamily property. I mean, obviously, if you have a single family house, there's not that much that's going on. If work happens, you can check to make sure. But it's one thing that preparing yourself for the sale is if you've had work done like this, you always have to check to make sure permits are closed because it's going to come up on that title search. And then you don't want to be doing that when you've got you know half uh, 30 days, right? before closing and you want to get that done and you don't want to be pushing anything out. So these are things that I should have been doing as a landlord, as a, what we'd call asset manager, right. On the property. So I yeah, should, but I, I would, yeah. here's what I would argue. You hired a person to essentially do that for you. Right. So I love talking yeah. about the should have, could have, would have, because anybody who's listening to this show right now, please take note, Charles, you've made the mistake. We're talking about it and it's for somebody to learn. So if you are an owner or an investor who's got multiple properties, these are things that you can take and you can start checking today. You don't need to wait for the sale of the property, right? To either run the search, check the permits, check whatever. I think the scale that you were at, it was almost impossible unless you had somebody doing it full-time, which is why you guys hired full-time. And when you hired, was it somebody who was on the outside or was it somebody who was on the inside and was in-house versus outsourced for your okay. properties and management? Yeah, these are all smaller properties. So they're on the, they were a third party outside, um, a property manager. 
because they're just they they weren't large. We properties weren't large enough up there for on-site management. But it was just one of the things is that yeah, you know they they could have checked on those permits and uh, these weren't this wasn't work that was done by you know myself. You know what I mean? Like I didn't yeah. contract. Maybe on the roof I did, but these are things that should have been checked and closed out. And it's a mistake with um with you know, with them not following up and me not checking, but I'll, you know, I'll take that responsibility. The thing though, is that it's just when anybody, especially if you're, you know, you're a real estate agent, or if you're an investor and you're dealing with properties that maybe have an absentee owner, like what we were, I wouldn't say, you know, there was mismanaged properties, properties were in very good shape when we sold them, but um, you, you have to really check those permits and stuff before you start. Um, if you're planning on selling, you've got to check your own. And if you're planning on buying, it's one thing you have to notice too, because that property is just not going to transact if there's not closed. And some states will have, or towns, municipalities will have like a time limit where, A, if it's after 10 years, it closes automatically or whatever it is. But, you know, you have to find that old uh, that old contractor. You got to get them there. You got to make sure they're still there. If they're not there, I mean, you're going to have quite the problem. And that's one of the things too, is that you can hold back some of your money when you're doing projects like this. Um, you know, you're doing a roof, it's $20,000. And it's like, you know, you get down to the end and, hey, okay, you, you left some materials there and this permit's still open. And um, so I'm going to, I'm going to give you, you know, 19,000. And uh, once this gets cleaned up, I'll give you 500. Once permits close, I'll give the rest. You know what I mean? And that's a great way of doing this. It kind of motivates that, mm -hmm. uh, that contractor to finish the job, to get the rest of their money. And you got to make it sizable. It can't be like a hundred dollars. You know what I mean? It's gotta be something where they're going to You got to hit him where it hurts. Yeah. And it's one thing that I've noticed, like after doing smaller renovations, you either have to put in penalties when the deadlines aren't hit. Mm -hmm. where it's like a per day type of penalty, like $250 per day for every day we're late on XYZ delivery, right? Or you have to basically not pay everything until everything is done. Because once you're paid and delivered, yeah, I found it, especially down here in Southeast Florida, I found it extremely difficult to actually get anything done after everybody's been paid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times too, you have people taking deposits, they're working on different jobs. There's so many things that you have to put in that contract and keep it. And that's why it's important. Like when you're, you know, project management, when you're doing these renovations, there's a reason why, you know, groups will charge, you know, 3% construction fee, you know, surcharge for property man, uh, project management, because it's a, it's a full-time job. I mean, making sure people are showing up, making sure work's done. Herding cats, my friend. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Making sure that it's to the level it's supposed to be before the next draw goes. Um, you know, all this type of stuff. And it's, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, like you said, I mean, it's a lot of work and you've, you've got to really stick to what you agreed with and you got to let people know that, Hey, I'm putting this in paper, but this is actually how it's going to be. Cause people sometimes, you know, they'll put stuff on paper and they don't think that's how it's going to really be. And you got to really let people know that this is exactly how we're going to keep it. And if there's any issues, you know, I'll work with you, but this is really exactly what we're happening. And I'm not going to let go of that last payment until, I mean, the thing is, is hundred percent done. Like you said. Hey, I just wanted to jump in here and let you know, if you would like access to over 26 of the top agents in the country to help you scale your business, then head over to EliteAgentSecrets.com slash partner, or you can just click the link in the description below. Now back to the show. Yeah, exactly. Which I think really leads us nicely into topic number one, officially, because we're talking about, you know, the 101, the building wealth by investing into real estate we can maybe cover some of the initial stuff, the beginner stuff, because we have an audience who doesn't own a piece of real estate. And then we have audiences um, that are, you know, seasoned veterans 
So where do we start? How do we start? Why building wealth by investing in real estate is a key? Why are we not talking about maybe crypto or any other mm -hmm. asset class for a matter of fact? Well, the great thing about uh, the audience of being a real estate agent is that um, you know you're already in there. You've probably already seen people making a lot of money that you've uh, worked with uh, once, multiple times, and um, getting yourself into that seat as being the investor, as the agent. Um, you know, already you're already um, knowledgeable about real estate. You have the idea of the areas. You have an overview of what's going on, and then it allows you to, um, as we were talking before the show, was. Um, Bringing on investment rental real estate into your portfolio, right, is something that there's a lot of tax benefits, which we won't get into, but fantastic way of tax benefits. But the main thing is that you're getting, you're building another income source that's not correlated to the 50, 60 hours a week that you're working as a real estate agent. And if there's any type of pullback in the market, uh, these are things that people aren't really worrying about when, uh, you know, they've got closings all lined up and everything's going great, but you go into a little bit of a pullback. Um, or a bloodbath like 0809. I mean, that's when you wish you had some rental real estate that was uh, covering some expenses with some of that cash flow. Yeah, and I I think we we as real estate professionals have a duty, responsibility, and an obligation to do what we're preaching to do. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's so many agents in every single market, uh, and listen, I was I was guilty of this at some point too, where they don't own property. Now, not owning property because you don't have the financial means to do so yet is a little bit different than you being scared and pulling the trigger and you're sitting on a bunch of cash in the bank, right? Or if you have another justifiable reason. But my wife and I, we just bought another property a few weeks back. And guess what? The rate was absolute shit. <laughs> the terms weren't all that much better. The prices are in my market, in my neighborhood, my area are going up. And I'm looking at trend graphics and I'm seeing things come down a little bit, but then I'm still seeing things move like hotcakes somewhere, somewhere else or very nearby, right? So, you know, we can dive into and talk about, are we heading into a recession? Are we talking about another 07, 08 type of, mm. you know, Armageddon? Um, who knows? But here's what I do know. I'm in the real estate profession. I get to keep real market data in real time. I get to walk into a listing appointment. And if the seller is reasonable about pricing the property, I have the ability to buy it at a 6% discount right out the gate, aka my mm -hmm. commission. And if there's a will, there's a way. And historically, I've seen real estate to continue to go up. So yeah. if we're playing the short-term game, absolutely. We're in for a rude awakening, maybe in for a wild ride. And Florida is a very unique animal within itself. So how did you go or what kind of recommendations or advice do you have for somebody who is sitting on the sidelines? Maybe they are a little bit scared about pulling the trigger on a property. Maybe they don't know even where to begin. Um, what kind of advice you wish you knew when you first started getting your properties? Um, I would have more of a, more of my goals, five, 10, 15 years spelt out in detail. And that makes it easier for you to make decisions. What you want five, 10, 15 years, it makes it easier for what you're doing now, right? Why, why is uh, that? Uh, because you know where you're going. If, um, you know, if your goal is to, uh, to own, you know, let's say, 10, 10 house rentals, right? 
And then, you know, you're in the process of going in, uh, you're now thinking I'm going to go start a restaurant. Well, that doesn't get you closer to your, <laughs> your goal. You know what I mean? So it's like, why don't you just start, you know, going towards your goal of buying those 10 rentals um, as that's what your goal is going to be in five or 10 years and working towards that. So it's really, it really puts the blinders on and it really gets you focused to what your goal is. And I think that's number one. If I had that more spelt out, I was really just, you know, like I was 22, you know, so I'm like buying a property here. Oh, this looks good over here. And, and then I realized like after a couple of years, what mistakes I had made with the first one. And the second one was a great property. One of my best ones I ever bought. Cause I like knew what I was doing. And then it's, you, you realize you, you figure out what you made did wrong and you figure out exactly kind of what your involvement wants to be with the property too. You have some people that go, Oh, I want to self-manage. I want to do all this. Eh, I don't know. I mean, if you're a highly paid agent or you're highly paid in another profession, your time is going to be worth more doing that, right? Showing a listing of a half million dollar house than it is going to be of uh, going over there and opening a door for a handyman. You know what I mean? So it's really like, do I want to own these properties myself? And then how do I want to do management? And knowing this upfront allows you really to, this makes it easier to pull a trigger because now you're like, you can start putting together like your team. And this is okay, so I'm the agent, okay, I'm going to source out these properties, I want to buy, you know, duplexes in this area. Um, okay, I have a property manager that's going to, I'm going to hire, he's going to charge me this. And then as I buy property, he's going to cut his cut his uh, rate a little bit. And so I have a plan here, he has a team of handymen and other people that are going to assist when this goes, when everything when I need them, you know what I mean, roofers and other contractors. And so having that plan makes it much easier to get off the sidelines, because now you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing once I buy it. I, you know what I mean? And I think people getting involved with stuff and they haven't set up their plan initially, their team, um, that's when you are hesitant to get off the bench, but it's also, you don't really know where you're going to fall, right? Uh, when you make that, when you make the plunge into buying your first property. And once you do the first one, you're going to realize, make a lot of mistakes. Um, and you're going to be able to come out ahead of it either way. But it's just, if you know, get the long-term debt on the property, buying good areas and always have some sort of reserve fund, right? And add to it monthly. Um, that's going to allow you to kind of minimize, if not uh, keep all your downsides to the minimal side, because it's it's really going to, you have yourself now a buffer of keeping rental income coming in. And also, so you have some cash flow coming in as your property appreciates. So then let me play a little bit of devil's advocate because you, you're right. I, I think the biggest obstacle for people that are sitting on the sidelines is the unknown of what awaits them after mm. they have the contract. And then after they close on a property, they're like, mm. who's going to help me with my repairs? Who's going to go and unclog the toilet You know, in the middle of the night if it's a yeah. long-term rental? Who's If you're buying multifamily, maybe multifamily is too much for you. Maybe you should just buy a single family. But think about the stuff that goes wrong at your own house. If your toilet gets clogged in the middle of the night, who do you call? The same person that you can call for maybe your rentals, right? So now taking it step even a little bit further, what about buying investment properties in uncertain times like we are a little bit right now, right? Like you went from 06 to 07, 08. Now we're seeing, you know, a little bit of uncertainty when it comes with to the rates and the prices and CNN, Fox, and everybody else is saying the world is coming to a you know, screeching halt and, and, and real estate market is collapsing. Meanwhile, we got Messi buying a 50-some million dollar Porsche Tower penthouse coming down to Boca, buying another $50 million property. 
And if you look at the local level, at least where I'm at, everything's going up. Prices are going up. Inventory is down. Rates are going up. We have more sales this month than we had last month. And you cannot justify anything that's happening if you're listening to the you know, to the big boys and the girls talking about on the news. It's like the opposite. The narrative is completely different. Yeah. The, the main thing is that when you're listening to those news outlets, it's very short-term minded, right? They're telling you, oh, rents are, how many times rents are coming down in 2023 and stuff like this, then you see it. And we have a holding in like a, a large holding, our most recent one in Dallas. And it's going down 1% and you're like, really? Like this is making news coverage because my rents aren't going up one year. Like it's, don't tell me they're not going to re, you know, they're not going to start again in 2024, but it's really how we invest. We're doing work to the properties. So our rents are continually going up as we do work on the properties. They're using the mantra of just, um, oh, you're not doing any work to it. You're just, you know, you're charging 1100 and now you're not going to be able to get, you know, 1150 a month. And yeah, if it keeps on the same level, same condition, that might be true in certain markets. But then when you also dig into those stories too, the markets that they talk about are not the ones we're focused on. Um, You know, I, Someone, some fact that they're talking about studios in uh, Greenwich Village is not affecting me renting apartments um, in Tampa outside of UCF or USF. So it's something that that doesn't affect where my people are. You know what I mean? Where my well, tenants same, are. Same same thing. I mean, recently, oh, you know, I, I do a lot of short term rentals, uh, not as far as like placing short term rentals, like acquisition of Airbnb properties for mm-hmm. my clients. And recently, the big headline was Airbnb revenue down 50%. Well, yeah, it's fucking down 50% because everybody and their mother threw their house up on Airbnb thinking that shit's going to rent for top dollar because for a long time, it's sort of big. So now you have all these people and all these shitty homes competing with actual investors who decked out their homes, who have the right you know, scene, the right setting, the right theme, you know, the proper location. And I have not seen a decline in bookings in any of my clients' properties, literally zero, not all. I think last month we were averaging about 85% occupancy, which is crazy to think about, right? Because we have some high-end properties and we have some low-end properties. And we have some properties that are renting for two, three, four hundred uh, ADR, average daily rate. And we have some properties that are renting for 12, 14, 1500 in ADR. Yeah. And I tell you what, we're in slow season. Mm-hmm. It is 100, 110 degrees down here in Southeast Florida. And I was expecting the slow season to actually be slow season. But even in slow season, we're averaging pretty freaking good occupancy. So then I start in a way, second guessing myself and questioning myself, like what is going on? Because the headlines say something completely opposite. I am firsthand, you know, in the dirt, seeing completely different. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how do we prepare our clients for what's about to come or what's even about to come? What's the narrative? What's the dialogue around everything? Mm -hmm. Um, And then we can explore different asset classes. Right? right, which we'll get to in just a second. So, what's your take on this? Where, where, where do you think, you know, if somebody's trying to build wealth in real estate, what are some of the key indicators that they need to be aware of, keep in mind, 
So they're not making a mistake, or maybe they're overcoming the fear from acquiring their first or maybe 10th property in a time of uncertainty. Yeah. So if you really want to, if you really want to, uh, you know, minimize that downside on on when you're buying what we call long-term rentals. So we're doing 12-month leases on not short-term rentals. Um, I would make sure that when you're buying the property, you put all your expenses together, you're actually cash flowing on that property. And um, you know, people some people will start with single family homes. Um, I'm a fan of getting more units under your belt at once. It gives you a little bit less volatility um, when you're having renters move in and move out. So buying a six unit property is going to give you less volatility when there's uh, one person not paying, one unit you're painting or getting painted before you rent it and four paying rent. So that's a huge thing that I would say um, when you're doing it. And the other thing too is that um, you know over the short term, you're going to you're gonna read, you're gonna read uh, news and everything like that. You just got to avoid that. Um, people are moving into these areas if you've done your research, these are job growth areas. These are population growth areas. These are areas where crime has been decreasing if you're doing it correctly. And these are areas that are going to be great for the next 10, 20 years going on. So um, like I said before, the reserve fund, make sure it's cash flowing and get long-term fixed debt you know, on your first property. And when I say long-term, at least five, 10 years. And that gives you a buffer of knowing exactly what your payment's going to be for the next five or 10 years. And it allows you to uh, be able to make decisions based on that. You don't have to worry about something that if my property is not where it's supposed to be in 24 months, I got to refinance it or something. You know, that's not, that's something maybe down the road. That's not something you're going to do in your first couple properties. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you would like one-on-one access to over 26 of the top agents in the country to help you scale your business, then head over to EliteAgentSecrets.com partner, or you can just click the link in the description below. 